Hey there, and welcome to episode 27 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your ample and busty host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Rides. Welcome to season three. I'll be covering the first two episodes of the new season. Episode one, And a Time to Die, and episode two, Trouble in Mind. Since it's a new season, I'll go ahead and give everyone their periodic reminders. Number one, I'm not an expert. I'm just a fan with a lot of opinions and access to a microphone. Two, I endeavor to pronounce everyone's name correctly and I fail miserably often. And three, I live in a loud house and in a kind of loud neighborhood. You're going to hear background noises and as I'm recording this, it's a little bit louder than usual because we're getting new sighting and unfortunately it's not soundproof, neither the application or the result. Sadly, 2021 has been hard on the Hawaii Five-O Ohana. In early July, we lost William Smith, who joined the cast in season 12 as Detective James Kimo Carew. And just recently, on September 21st, we lost Al Harrington, who appeared on the show five times before joining the cast as Ben Kukua in season five. He also had a recurring role as Mamo Kahiki on the 2010 reboot. We'll be seeing Al Harrington a couple of times this season. In fact, I was scheduled to record one of those episodes the day I found out he passed. I'm heartbroken, to say the least. May both men travel safely beyond the horizon. Aloha. In their memory, let's go to Hawaii. Get me Kavanaugh and get him fast. Good morning, McGarrett. to see you again. Okay, Mr. Cavanaugh, drop the glad hand. Why the freeze out at the heliport? It's a little accident. You don't expect me to buy that, do you? Try. Not a chance. Hey, McGarrett. Back off. This does not concern 5-0. Now, is that right? That's right. Well, since you're still a little new out here, Mr. Cavanaugh, maybe nobody's told you. What? That not even United States intelligence can cover up a shootout and tell me it's none of my business. Now, I want to know what's going on, and I want to know now. All right, McGarrett. Season 3, Episode 1, and A Time to Die. Air date September 16th, 1970. Directed by Charles S. Dubin. This will be the second of 26 episodes for him. And written by Ken Pettis. This is the first of eight episodes for him. One of Wolfat's men gives him a call from the airport to let him know that the helicopter will be arriving soon, information he relays to the assassin he's sharing a room with just before he leaves. Meanwhile, Sam Cavanaugh from the State Department and his two agents, Rolston and Tyler, arrive to meet the helicopter. The passenger, Shepard, disembarks with two other agents and begins crossing over to Cavanaugh when he suddenly panics and runs. He's brought down by the sniper's bullet, and as Cavanaugh and his men whisk Shepard off to the hospital, the assassin splits. Steve arrives on scene as the rest of 5-0 gathers evidence. Dano retrieves the bullet from a tree. Kono is checking the closest building that the sniper might have used. And Chinho is trying to interview a security guard. But as the guard tells Steve, he's under orders not to say anything to anybody, not even who gave him the orders. But that's okay, Steve knows. He meets with Kavanaugh at the hospital, and Kavanaugh tells Steve to back off, which, as we all know, Steve won't do. Eventually, Kavanaugh relents, telling Steve that Shepard is a British national and a journalist that's been embedded in China for 10 years and is working for the Americans undercover. 
He was in the process of bringing back a map of all of the missile silos in China. Unfortunately, the map is in Shepard's head and he's currently in a coma. News that Wolfat isn't thrilled to be hearing either, but for the opposite reason. He really needs Shepard dead so that the map stays secret, but this will be difficult due to the security of the hospital. So he and his men will have to find another way. Dr. Forbes explains that Shepard's skull wasn't penetrated by the bullet, but it was creased. He may have a brain contusion and possible swelling, something they won't be able to say for sure or do anything about without surgery. There's a small possibility that Shepard will wake up without surgery, and Kavanaugh is willing to put all his chips on that marker, not wanting to risk him dying in surgery. He's also not interested in finding the sniper. His only concern is getting that map in Shepard's head. Steve suggests that he might have a leak, seeing as how the sniper knew where, when, and how Shepard would be arriving. Kavanaugh dismisses it, saying that Shepard blew his own cover because he's an amateur. Dr. Forbes again presses Kavanaugh for permission to operate. Kavanaugh says he'll talk to Jonathan Kay about it, a prick-to-prick -prick call that will get him an answer in an hour. Meanwhile, Dr. Forbes gets a call of his own from his distraught wife, telling him to come home immediately. There, Wofat calmly tells him that his daughter Ellen will be returned safely to him and his wife so long as Shepard dies on the table. Looking for a way out of violating his Hippocratic Oath, Forbes asks what will happen if he's not allowed to operate. Wofat tells him, in that case, he'll have to find another way to ensure that Shepard doesn't wake up. His daughter's life depends on it. Forbes tells Stephen Kavanaugh about Ellen and Wofat's request. Kavanaugh insists that Forbes not operate now, even though Jonathan Kay gave the go-ahead, because he believes that he'll kill Shepard to save his daughter, and he really wants that damn map. However, Steve points out that Forbes is the best and the only chance that Shepard really has. Kavanaugh relents, but he ain't happy. Dano calls Steve to let him know that they've found the sniper's nest. 5-0 recreates the shooting to discover that Shepard couldn't have seen the shooter, so that isn't why he panicked. He ran from someone else. Forbes begins to operate on Shepard with another one of Kavanaugh's agents in the OR, giving him play-by-play -play on the phone. Steve comes in and confronts Kavanaugh with a nasty truth. Either he or Ralston is the leak. Shepard knew it and ran when he saw him. Kavanaugh considers Ralston, but instead of putting him on ice, Steve wants to use him to find Ellen. Kavanaugh goes to Ralston and tells him that he believes Tyler is the leak and he wants Ralston to follow him. Ralston leaves to do just that, stopping at a payphone first to inform Wofat of the false news while Danny and Kona watch. On his enemy agent yacht, Wofat offers Ellen some lunch, but she's not hungry. He tells her not to be afraid, telling her a story about another little girl whom he tried to help not be afraid, but he can't bring himself to finish it. Instead, he offers to play a game of chess with her and she accepts. Kono tries to get the number that Rolston called from the payphone, thinking it's long distance because he used the operator, but it wasn't, and the operators don't keep logs of local calls. Steve suggests a mobile or marine unit, a car or a boat. Operators do keep logs for those. Perhaps Wofat is mobile. Meanwhile, in surgery, Shepard takes a turn for the worst. <laughs> So here we have an episode that's using the trope of having a child in a situation of danger and using that as leverage to get what someone wants. And I like the way that it plays out because first of all, it's Wofat and we all know how much I love Wofat. But normally in these situations or what you see many times on TV or in movies or whatever is that the person whose child is in danger doesn't tell the authorities because they believe that the authorities aren't going to help them. And Forbes immediately goes to Steve and Kavanaugh and goes, this is a dilemma. What am I supposed to do? You guys are in charge of this shit show. I need you to help me save my daughter. 
the unfortunate thing is, is that only Steve is really interested in that because Kavanaugh is so ate up with wanting this damn map of all of these missile silos. Like, this dude could give two shits if your daughter lives. He doesn't even care about finding the damn sniper. He's just all about getting the information that's in Shepard's brain, which is really kind of interesting because, in a sense, this is all his fault because he delayed on doing the operation on Shepard by first not giving any authorization at all, saying he would rather risk him waking up without surgery than having the surgery and having him die. And then later saying, well, I can't make the decision. I have to call Jonathan Kay and he can make that decision and give you that authorization. So there was a delay in which if that surgery had been performed immediately, then Wofat probably wouldn't have had that angle of kidnapping Ellen and trying to use Ellen to force Forbes into killing Shepard for him. So this is really all Kavanaugh's fault. If he wasn't such a prick, which I know is a requirement if you're going to work in the State Department, apparently, but if he wasn't such a prick, this would have been taken care of and Ellen never would have been in danger. At least that's my take on it. But instead, we have Kavanaugh being a super prick and causing all of these problems for everybody. And it starts with him telling the security guards not to give 5-0 any information about the shooting or the victim. So you know from the very beginning just how uncooperative this guy is going to be. And this guy, Kavanaugh, is actually played by Gerald S. Laughlin. So we've already seen him twice before playing the speculation is the same character he was playing Swanson in two different episodes, The Box and Six Kilos. We've already seen him interact with Jack Lord and their chemistry is off the charts. I love watching them butt heads. They go together so perfectly. And something that I commented on about Gerald S. Laughlin on Eventually Super Train when we were covering Auto Man because he played the captain in that short-lived show is that Gerald S. Laughlin always sounds like he's yelling even when he's not. So he just has this naturally aggressive demeanor and way of presenting himself even when he's not trying to be. When he, even when he's not loud, he's still somehow loud. And so it plays really well when he's being irritated with Steve because Steve is insisting on finding the sniper. He's insisting on saving Ellen. He's calling Kavanaugh out saying that there's obviously a leak in his department and it is not Shepard. It's either him or Ralston. It makes it play so much better that he's just a naturally loud person. I guess he was also on The Rookies, but I haven't watched that. Even though I have two seasons of it, I still haven't watched it. So I'm going to have to watch it and see if he's still that loud. Anyway their back and forth are great because now Steve is not only trying to figure out who this sniper is and then later trying to find Ellen, but he's also dealing with this prick from the State Department who is absolutely unhelpful. He very much so has to do everything but put this man in a headlock to <laughs> get him to cooperate at all. So Steve is incredibly frustrated throughout this entire episode. And naturally, it is complicated by the fact that they are dealing with Wofat, his arch nemesis. So Steve has a little bit more of information to come into this situation because he's dealt with Wofat before. He has a little bit of understanding of how this is all going to play out. And I think that's what frustrates him even more is that not only will the State Department not cooperate, the State Department is not taking this threat seriously enough or they don't understand this threat quite like he does. So on the good guy side of them going through the process, which there isn't a whole lot of process, but going through the process of trying to find Ellen and Kavanaugh's pathological desire to get the information in Shepard's head, you have that frustration for Steve. 
you don't get a whole lot from the other team members throughout this episode. They do figure out the sniper nest and we see them do that. But other than that, we don't really see them a whole lot. Danny and Kono get to follow Rolston around towards the end. And they're all together for Ellen's rescue, which I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, of course, they save the day. So that all that's going on on the good guy side. On the bad guy side, we have Wofat. And they did something very interesting here with him. Now, Wofat's already a very interesting character. If you've actually watched the episodes like I have before or after listening to my take on them, you will know that in the, the pilot movie in Cocoon, he's a very interesting, menacing character particularly the speech that he gives when he's about to put Steve in the uh, sensory deprivation chamber. It is chilling, chilling stuff and executed so well. In the second season when he comes back and he is going toe-to-toe with Will Gear and his character, their play interplay together, he's a very sophisticated, educated person. He's not a straight cartoon. At the time, it would have been Chinese red supervillain you already are seeing some depth and complexity with that character. With this episode in A Time to Die, we get even more layers to this character. Because first of all, he never loses his cool. This can be very frustrating. Your assassination plan doesn't go quite as you wanted it to, and your victim is still alive, and there's the possibility that he could recover and spill his beans. He kept his cool and he was like, well, we'll just kidnap this child and leverage this doctor to lose a patient. But the way he explains it to the parents, it's all very rational, all very reasonable. He's not only explaining this in in terms of saying, this has to be done if you want to see your daughter alive again, but also explaining it in such terms as saying that A, Forbes would never be suspected. This is not a murder that he could ever be convicted of because no one would ever be able to prove that he intentionally botched this operation. But also, he's almost assaging the guilt that Forbes would feel for purposely losing a patient in exchange for his daughter's life. Don't tell me that you've never lost a patient. And you'll lose more in the years ahead. Perhaps enough so that Kyle Shepard will become just a name among names of the people you tried to save and couldn't. What if I'm not allowed to operate? However you accomplish it, Doctor, Mr. Shepard is not to regain consciousness. And naturally, I have to mention that Mrs. Forbes is played by Linda Ryan, whom we last saw as Gloria Warren in the last season, and I absolutely adore her. She is so beautiful. And again, she graces us with her glorious presence. She's let her hair grow out a little bit, but it's still short and it's quite dark and it's got some silver in it and oh, absolute goddess, love her. Anyway, he also has this really great line when he leaves because he guarantees that Ellen will be returned if Shepard dies and she will be returned unharmed. And he has this really great line about that. But more important, in my profession, a man cannot afford a credibility gap. He must keep his promises he wants anybody to believe his threats. So you can see that he's serious, that he's not only serious in keeping his promises, but also in keeping his threats. And later when he's talking to Ellen, you kind of get an understanding of exactly why he's so intent 
on making it as easy as possible for Forbes to do this for him and helping him massage his guilt and all that because of the story that he tells Ellen. You mustn't be frightened. It's very important not to be. I knew a little girl once. It was a long time ago, or so it seems now. It was a time of great fighting in my country. I tried to keep her from being afraid, her mother and I, and I don't think she was. Or perhaps I just want to think so. Then one day during the fighting, she ran into the street and... Do you play chess? Sometimes. Really? My mother taught me. Your mother? Now that's very interesting. So few women play chess. They seem to have no grasp for it. Come, I'll play you a game. It's actually a very sweet scene. The little girl's very sweet. I love her pants. I need those to come in fat women's sizes. But anyway, it's a very sweet scene, and we are given a glimpse into Wofat's existence that is a departure from a typical Chinese red in that he's very humanized in that moment. During the, the revolutions in China in, I believe it was 1940s, he lost his daughter. So you can understand why he's, A, why he's using Ellen as leverage, but B, why he's also trying to make it so easy for Forbes to make this decision and to keep Ellen safe. And that actually comes into play later because he is very sweet to her. He looks after her. He doesn't want her to be afraid of them. He promises her that this will all be over soon. He is very caring towards the child. However, things don't always go the way that you plan. And what's interesting about that is how he deals with what inevitably happens. Because what inevitably happens is Forbes is allowed to, finally allowed to operate on Shepard. Now this is brain surgery in the 1970s. It's still incredibly risky today in 2021 when I'm recording this. In 1970, we weren't exactly that far away from just drilling holes in people's heads as a psychological cure. So obviously brain surgery is very risky. It did not help that the surgery was delayed. That makes Shepard's condition worse. And so Forbes is in there operating while uh, another agent is relaying everything to Kavanaugh, who's in an office, and he's got it basically on speakerphone, which is a beautiful mint green phone that I require. I, I need this in my life. Where else are you going to find a mint green phone than 1970? But anyway, he's being kept up to date on the surgery because he is adamant that Shepard lives because Shepard needs to live so he can get the friggin' map of these stupid missile silos. I already don't care if China blows us up because I'm so sick of listening to Kavanaugh go on about this damn map. So that's when Steve comes in and calls him out saying that they set up the sniper shot. And I believe that the sniper shot came from the rainbow tower of the Hilton Hawaiian village at Waikiki Beach, which still looks the exact same today. I don't know if it was called all of that back in 1970, but that's what it's called today. And it's still standing and it's still magnificent. But anyway, that's the vantage point. That was the nest that the sniper used was from that hotel. The interesting thing is, is that they discovered that where Shepard had stopped and then ran, he wouldn't have been able to see the sniper because there were trees in the way. And 
by that same token, the sniper wouldn't have been able to shoot Shepard because there were trees in the way. They would the, the sniper literally would have had to wait until he was basically almost up to the car before he was taken out. And to me, that's cutting it a little close. But they figure out from finding this, the sniper's nest and the vantage point that Shepard didn't run because he saw the sniper. He ran because he saw either Kavanaugh or Rolston because those two gentlemen were outside of the car. Tyler was driving and he was still in the car. So Steve confronts Kavanaugh about this. And what I like about that confrontation is until you see Ralston make the phone call to Wofat, there is still some doubt in your mind that Kavanaugh might not be the mole because you think about all of his actions leading up to that and that he was delaying the surgery. Then he didn't want Forbes to operate because of the Ellen situation. And it he kind of looks guilty. He looks like he could have been in Wofat's pocket. And the way he too considers Ralston and the way he's going through Walston's career that he'd been stationed in the Far East at about the same time that Shepard had been over there and that sort of thing. It's like he's jumping on the train that, oh yes, I could frame Ralston. So that doubt is like in your head right up until Ralston makes the phone call to Wofat from the phone booth. And Wofat, you hear Wofat literally say, our man Ralston. So you know for sure. But it's kind of neat that how it plays out right up until that point. You're not 100% sure that, that Kavanaugh's on the up and up. So Kavanaugh's getting these updates in the office from surgery and Shepard unfortunately goes into cardiac arrest during the surgery. Dr. Forbes attempts life-saving measures. Here's the thing. Not only this is this 1970s life-saving measures, but it's also TV life-saving measures. They don't put in the effort on television that they usually do in real life. They'll code someone as long as they can before finally calling it. They'll do everything. They'll just exhaust everything. This was a very short code that we saw. And Forbes, who is played by Donald Moffat, is doing CPR on him. And so the angle's awkward anyway because he's up on a surgery table. He's up on an operating table. So he's a little high anyway, and you really need to like jump up to get the thing. But he's also not doing the compressions, the chest compressions that hard. Obviously he can't physically do them as hard as they would require. That would break ribs and be really painful for the actor. And we're not gonna do that. But he's not showing that he's doing the effort and he's also not doing them quick enough. But back in 1970, they I don't think they have the staying alive method back then. CPR was still pretty new. At that point, it was like the last 20 years, 25 years, they've been using it. So it unintentionally looks like a weak resuscitation effort when it's actually probably not. But my thought when I was watching that scene was literally CPR harder. So unfortunately, Shepard dies, which is exactly what Wofat wants, but we can't give Wofat what he wants. Even though we could and get Ellen back and everything would be hunky-dory, but then he would be able to go back to China with the confidence that the missile silos will remain secret and they don't want that. At least Kavanaugh doesn't want that. So Kavanaugh comes up with the idea that they're going to pretend that Shepard made it through, which will scare Wolfat and make him think that the beans have been spilt or are going to be spilt. So he'll go home and tell people to get rid of the missile silos. Unfortunately, this would cause Ellen's demise. And Steve points that out. And Kavanaugh's basically like, sorry, not sorry. He really wants to get those missile silos. So Steve comes up with the idea. He asks Forbes how much longer the surgery would have taken if Shepard hadn't died. And he says about two hours. 
So he tells Kavanaugh, he goes, give me those two hours. And immediately Kavanaugh says no, because he is an uncooperative prick to the very end. Because he wants to put out the information that Shepard lived as soon as possible so he can get those missile silos taken care of. But Steve tells him if he puts out the word that Shepard lived, he'll put out the word that Kavanaugh lied. He will make sure that Wofat knows that Kavanaugh lied if he doesn't get those two hours. You want to talk about grabbing somebody by the balls and giving them a twist. Absolutely a brilliant, brilliant strong arm tactic because Steve knows his enemy. He knows Wofat and he knows what will happen if Wofat gets that information. And he knows that if the information comes from him, that Wofat will believe it. He'll know it's not a jive. So Kavanaugh's kind of up against a wall. He has no choice but to give Steve those two hours. And 5-0 uses them quite well to track down Ellen and Wofat. However, they're kind of put into a box because Rolston calls in for an update and Kavanaugh can't put him off any longer or he says that he can't. So he goes ahead and gives Ralston the word that Shepard made it. And Ralston, of course, passes that word on to Wolfat, which disappoints Wolfat greatly because this means that Ellen is going to have to die. And the interesting thing about that is that not only is Wolfat upset about this, you can tell, and that he's reluctant to do this, he leaves and leaves it to his two men, his assassin and his, his other guy who has a name and I can't remember what it is. But he leaves it to his two men to carry this out. And even the two men look reluctant and disappointed that they have to do this, like they don't want to do this. So it's an interesting bit of humanity to put in there that none of these men are as unfeeling as we would like to think that they are. It humanizes them just a little bit, which makes it hard to put them in that mindless evil category. But the thing is, is that Stephen Fivo still used that two hours really well, and it turns out that everybody gets something they want. And you know what else we want? This guest cast, because it's pretty spiffy. So let's get into it. As I said, Sam Cavanaugh was played by Gerald S. O'Loughlin. This is his third of three episodes, and again, like I said, he was also in The Box and Six Kilos. Dr. David Forbes was played by Donald Moffat. He's probably best known as Gary in The Thing. He was also Rem on Logan's Run, Enos on The Chisholms, Brooks Oliver on Dallas. He was Les Grant on Buck James, and Robert the Kaiser Roberts on Bull. He also turned up in episodes of Naked City, The Defenders, Room 222, Lancer, Mission Impossible, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Night Gallery, Mannix, Ironside, The Six Million Dollar Man, Little House on the Prairie, Murder, She Wrote, The 1980s Twilight Zone, China Beach, and West Wing. He was also in the movies Cookie's Fortune, which I love, The Evening Star, Clear and Present Danger, Regarding Henry, Bonfire of the Vanities, The Right Stuff, Popeye, Earthquake, a classic and Rachel Rachel, and he was in the TV movies Of Mice and Men, the 1968 version, The Devil and Miss Sarah, The Call of the Wild, Waiting for Godot, Strangers, the story of a mother and daughter, Who Will Love My Children, Crossfire, The Great Pretender, and 61, and he was also in the miniseries The Word and Tales of the City. Glenn Ralston was played by Norman DuPont. This is his first of 10 episodes. He was in episodes of Mr. and Mrs. North, 
I Married Joan, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Bourbon Street Beat, 77 Sunset Strip, and The Brian Keith Show. He was also in the movies The Nun and the Sergeant and Jump Into Hell. Ellen Forbes was played by Sherry Plepp. This was her only credit, which is a shame. I thought she did a great job, and Plepp is a great name. Janet Forbes, of course, was played by Linda Ryan. This is her second of 11 episodes. We previously saw her in Most Likely to Murder. Kyle Shepard was played by Chuck Couch. This is his fourth of 17 episodes. Oren Bates, one of Wofat's men, was played by Nick Nicholas. This is his first of five episodes, and those are his only credits. Sanders was played by Michael Leong. This is his second of four episodes. We also saw him in One for the Money. Chung the Assassin was played by Danny Kamakona. This is his eighth of 33 episodes. And Tyler was played by Baird Miller. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in Cocoon. Our writer is Ken Pettis. He wrote eight episodes of Hawaii Five-O. He was also story consultant on 25 episodes of Hawaii Five-O, 16 episodes of Black Sheep Squadron, and 11 episodes of Magnum P.I. He has writing credits for five episodes of The Gallant Men, three episodes of Temple Houston, 12 episodes of Mr. Roberts, nine episodes of The Green Hornet. So we talked about him a lot over on Eventually Super Train. When Dan and I chatted about The Green Hornet, go check those episodes out. Five episodes of High Chaparral, 14 episodes of The Big Valley, seven episodes of The Wild Wild West, eight episodes of Bonanza, 10 episodes of Mission Impossible, and six episodes of Black Sheep Squadron. He also has writing credits for the movies Land Raiders, Blade Rider, Revenge of the Indian Nations, and Incident at Phantom Hill. And he has writing credits for the TV movies The Adventures of Nick Carter, Search for the Gods, Dead Man on the Run, and The Lady from Yesterday. He also has writing credits under the name Stephen Thornley. Five episodes of State Trooper, 20 episodes of Mike Hammer, 14 episodes of Coronado 9, six episodes of Shotgun Slade, two episodes of Frontier Circus, and also episodes of Matt Houston, Enos, Bring Him Back Alive, and the movie Hangar 18. I have no idea why he has writing credits under another name. Something I probably could have Googled, but I didn't. He also has, under Ken Pettis, producer credits for 13 episodes of Matt Helm. And that is And A Time To Die. I really do like this episode because A, we have Wofat. And not only do we have Wofat, we have Wofat being a complex villain, which I love. Thank you for the depth. And we also have Gerald S. O'Loughlin back to be a thorn in Jack Lord's side. And like I said, they are magic together. I love their chemistry together, especially when they're butting heads. And this was actually a fun episode to watch those two play off each other in instead of one being a good guy, one being a bad guy, we now have both of them are technically good guys. So slightly different dynamic, but the chemistry was just as great. And overall, the whole idea of using a child to leverage a parent to do something criminal, it's a tale as old as time, but it was definitely given a fresh twist with Forbes going to the authorities, first of all, and second of all, it's Wofat. Wofat's always gonna jazz it up. Don't be afraid to give this one a watch. You enjoy winning. Don't you? It's important. It's necessary. Let the 219 train ease my worried mind. Trouble in my 
Episode 2, Trouble in Mind, air date September 23rd, 1970, directed by Danny Arnold. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O, and written by Mel Goldberg. This is his 8th of 12, and Sasha Gillian, this is their first of 10 episodes. Edie Jordan is doing an impromptu set at a bar with her piano player Mike Martin, their local friend Rags, and the house drummer Hank sitting in. Hank passes a fix of heroin to Martin just before Kono comes in and does a strip search on bar patron and noted heroin dealer Harry Parch. Another bar patron, Ron, takes that opportunity to bail. Meanwhile, Eddie finishes up her song as Kono finishes with Harry. Edie and Martin leave and end up following Kono. In his haste to pass him, he nearly hits another car head-on and unintentionally runs Kono off the road. Kono gives chase. Mike hides the heroin fix in the ashtray under the radio before pulling over. Martin gets out of the car to talk to Kono, giving him permission to search the vehicle. Just as Kono gets his fingers on the little pouch of powder, Martin clocks him with a rock. He jumps in the car and takes off, leaving Kono on the side of the road. Kono gets to his feet and stumbles back to the car, putting an APB out on Mike Martin. At 5-0 headquarters the next day, Kono reports that Martin was picked up, but he tested clean. Dano has some information that might make Kono's head feel better. Edie Jordan is clean criminally, but Martin did a stretch for use in possession. Edie and the band are rehearsing at the shell when Steve pays a visit. At a break, Steve talks to Martin, who tells Steve the same story he's been telling. Kono ran them off the road and threatened them. Martin panicked, hit him with a rock, and fled. Edie backs him up. Steve doesn't buy it, but he decides to let Martin know that he knows of his past as a user and then drops a bomb on him. There's some killer smack going around the island, and by killer, Steve means deadly. Five people have already died. At the office, Steve reviews the five dead addicts with Che Fong, one of them only 17 years old. All five had heroin and arsenic in their system. Steve comes up with two possible theories. Someone is intentionally cutting the heroin with poison, or someone is a total dipshit and cutting the heroin with poison. Either way, Steve wants to know if it's intentional or not, and who's doing it. Speaking of doing it, Hank sure is, and his moment of bliss is interrupted by his painful arsenic poisoning death. Sorry, Hank. You got the bad H. Steve goes to see Edie at the beach house where she's staying. Turns out, Steve's a fan. But flattery only gets him so far with Edie because she has no interest in talking about the incident with Kono. It's clear Edie cares for Martin. That's why she's sticking up for him. Steve again warns her about the deadly heroin. He thinks Harry Parch is pushing it and that he might be Martin's connection, and if they're not careful, she'll end up losing her piano man. Steve and Kono theorize that now-dead Hank might have also bought his fix from Harry. If Kono hadn't stopped Martin, he might have ended up shooting up the same deadly batch. Meanwhile, Edie is prickly as hell at rehearsal, snapping at the band and Martin about the arrangement before stalking off. Martin assures the band he'll work everything out, then goes to talk to Edie. Surprise! She's the heroin addict, and she's in need of a fix. Martin has been trying to help her quit by easing her off and encourages her to wait until after the performance the next night, but she can't do it. She needs the fix or she'll make a spectacle of herself, and that'll be the end of her career, except for what they print in the gossip mags. Desperate, Martin goes to Rags for help, but seeing as he just lost a friend and a drummer and the island is crawling with cops on the hunt for the H, he's in no mood to help. Martin hits the streets and ends up with Harry Parch's address, which 5 also has, along with a warrant. Harry treats us all to another strip search while Chin Ho searches the apartment. It looks like another zilch until Chin spots a little snow. Standing on a chair and removing some molding, Chin finds Harry's stash in a hole in the wall. Harry gets booked and his stuff gets sent to the lab. 
Martin arrives at the apartment just in time to duck down and watch Harry be taken out in cuffs. Later, lab tests confirm that Harry's stuff is cut way the hell down, but not with arsenic. As Martin ponders his next move, he's approached by a kid who saw the whole thing. He knows why Martin was looking for Harry, and he can help him out. Still desperate to score for Edie, Martin follows the kid home, and the kid tries to sell him a fix out of his own stash for $50. Martin asks how he knows it's good, because there's some real bad stuff floating around. The kid says, that's just fuzz jive, and offers to demonstrate how good it is, because he also partakes, as well as deals. Martin stops him, telling him that it'll kill him no matter what, just as Danny and Kodo burst in. In jail, Martin is looking for a deal. He'll tell Steve what he knows if he'll let him out to make the gig with Edie. Steve considers it, but all Martin can tell him is that he bought off of Hank. He doesn't know Hank's supplier, which does Steve absolutely no good. Martin begs Steve to let him play the gig because Edie can't go on without him. It's then that Steve realizes the truth. Edie is the addict, and Martin loves her so much that he took a rap and went to jail for her. He's been trying to help her quit and wants to get her help, but right now she's still in need of a fix, and with Martin in jail, she'll be out looking. Steve and Martin need to find her fast. Cold and stormy Monday. Tuesday's just as bad. So, if you're at all familiar with the way that drug use morality tales typically play out, you're not going to be surprised by the ending of this episode. And this is very much what this whole story is. Because there were a lot, and there still are, a lot of cautionary tales about drug use, particularly in cop shows. And while they tend to, when they're doing the morality tales, focus on the addict and how that addict can ruin their lives and the lives of other people, and they do sympathize and humanize them quite a bit, they tend to all end the same way. But what's interesting about this cautionary tale is how we're introduced to it. So it starts with Edie and Martin jamming at the bar, and we see Kona will come in and shake down Harry Parch, and Ron, who's been grooving to the music in a really very loud shirt and serious white boy dancing, leaves. And we see Hank give Martin a fix, so you know that drugs are in play here. And when Edie and Martin leave and they end up running Kono off the road and Martin hits him with the rock, poor Kono, his noggin gets abused so much. When all of that goes down, you think that's going to be the episode because Steve goes to talk to Martin and he comes up with this cockamamie story about how Kono was the aggressor. So you think that's kind of going to be the episode that there's obviously drugs in play, but the crux of the episode is going to be them trying to prove that Kono made a legitimate bust. But it switches because when Steve is talking to Martin and Edie at the Shell, which is the same place that we saw back in By the Numbers in the first season, it's where Johnny Crawford got his ass kicked. So while they're at this rehearsal and Steve talks to him and we have the same cockamamie story, that's when he drops that bomb of, oh, hey, by the way, you like to partake. Well, guess what? You're playing Russian roulette with your life, not just in the overall general sense of drugs are bad, okay? But in the sense that there's somebody cutting it with poison and it could kill you. You're out on bond because of alleged assault. Could have been manslaughter. We also have your record. You're recently out of uh, Lexington, Mr. Martin, right? I'm clean now. Five people are dead because some poison heroin is being peddled on these islands. Well, that has nothing to do with me. Good. Because if you are back on, you're liable to catch yourself a bummer you didn't figure on. 
the whole Cone was being currently slandered about running off Martin and Edie off the road and Martin was defending himself takes an immediate back burner. It's not the main story. The main story is them trying to find this tainted heroine and we do that through Martin and Edie, a big part of the episode. We have Stephen 5-0 obviously looking for it as well. Five junkies. Five human beings. Every autopsy shows arsenic mixed in with the heroin. What is it? What are they looking for? Some crazy new kind of kick? A little bit of horse? A little bit of rat poison? What is it? Is that where it's at? Will you tell me? I told you what the autopsy shows. Where it's at, you'll have to figure. And let me tell you, there is a whole lot of slang in this episode. A lot of episodes that deal with, like, whatever is hip and now. So we've had hippies, we've had the young people, and they talk a lot in slang. Now you have Jay Fong and McGarrett doing it, and it just, it's fabulous. But then we have Edie and Martin also doing it because they're in a band. You can't get hipper than that. So of course they're going to be all up on the slang. And then later we've got the kid that Martin almost buys from. He's full of the slang, especially with the fuzz jive. Loved the fuzz jive. And the thing is, is that one thing that actually dates media the most is not the fashion. It's not the storylines. It's the slang. And so we've had it peppered throughout most of the episodes in minimal quantities, so you really don't notice it. It's really heavy here. And so it really kind of, it really kind of dates the episode just by the language quite a bit, except some of it's actually come back around. So what is old is new again. But it's just interesting to hear, especially when you hear Jay Fong and, and Steve using it. I mean, I love you, Steve. You're cool, but you're still kind of square. Anyway. In his discussion with Che Fong about this, he maintains the humanity of the victims of their addiction. And they're victims because someone, either intentionally or unintentionally, ended their lives by adding the arsenic to heroin. So not only is he trying to eradicate the heroin trade in general, but now he's really on it because he's trying to save lives immediately, not just from years of addiction. So a lot of this plays out through Martin and Edie. Because, of course, Steve talks to them at the shell. Then he talks to Edie on her own at the beach house. And it turns out that Steve is a fan. I've got just about every side you ever cut, including your tapes and cassettes. Come on. Even the funky blues 45. You gotta be kidding. They only cut five of those. They may be sold to. Well, I'm the guy who bought the other one. Steve is justified in being a fan because Edie is actually played by Nancy Wilson, who was a singer, and she was quite good. She had several popular songs. One of them that became a hit was called You Don't Know How Glad I Am, which I listened to on YouTube, and it's fabulous. So there's a lot of music in the episode. There's a lot of her music in the episode as well, which I'm not hating because I love it. So seriously, go check out her stuff if you like jazz and you like Grammy winners. Anyway. I think it's very sweet, the way he kind of fawns over her work just a little bit. But, you know, flattery gets you nowhere. And it gets him nowhere with Edie because she doesn't want to talk about it. She maintains the story that Kona was the aggressor, which we all know is garbage. Though I do have many questions about that incident because Kona pulls him over, obviously, and asks to search the car, which Martin stupidly says yes to because Kono actually issues the threat of when Martin questions why he wants to search the vehicle, Kono says, well, we can search it here or I can, we can go down to the station and get a warrant. I would have asked for the damn warrant. Take my ass down to the damn station. Take my car to the station. See if you can get a warrant. What is your, what is your motivation for this other than the fact that I drove like shit? 
if I can take the DUI test and pass it, it's just me driving like an asshole. You've got no cause to search my car and the judge will back me up. But nobody ever calls anybody out like that. So he ends up searching the car, finds the heroin, gets hit over the head with a rock. They leave. Kono gets up with him's cracked melon, gets back to the car and immediately puts out an APB on Mike Martin, which of course, dedicated police officer. But never once in that exchange does he mention that he has been hurt and that he also would require assistance. I certainly hope that they just didn't air that part because I don't want to think about a concussed Kono trying to drive around when he can barely keep his eyes open and he's got blood dripping down the side of his head. I would like to think that as dedicated as he is of a police officer that he would have had the sense to say, oh, and by the way, if you could send me someone to at least drive my car, I would really appreciate that. But anyway... Edie doesn't want to talk about any of that, and she, she resists talking about that to the extent that Steve gives up, in a sense, as much as Steve can give up, and again reminds her about the tainted heroin that's going around. And then we see it strike a little close to home in the sense that Hank ends up getting the bad batch and dies from arsenic poisoning. So a lot of the process that we see, and we don't see much Danny or Chen Ho throughout the episode, but much of the process that we see is obviously getting jackets on Edie and Mike, but only Mike has an arrest record because he went in, I think for six months, they said, for possession and use. And so he was in a treatment facility, which 1970, they usually just stuck your ass in jail. So that's a little bit forward thinking. And also that he tested clean when HPD finally caught up with him. So those two interesting notes. And then they're constantly on Harry Parch throughout all of this. They're sure he's the one that's dealing the bad stuff. So we get to see, we don't get to see the actual strip search, the first strip search. Kono at least it takes him to a section of the bar where it doesn't turn into a striptease. But we do get to see the second one. So you see a lot more of Harry Parch than you ever thought you would. So you don't get to see a whole lot of the process because we really are kind of focusing on Martin and Edie. And as you watch the episode, so you see... Edie at the bar, in good spirits, a little nervous in the car with Mike because he's driving like an asshole. We see her at rehearsal and interacting with her band at the rehearsal. And she's a little demanding, but she's in good spirits and she's funny about it and self-deprecating about it. And then you see her at the beach house and she's a little more irritable, but you write that off as understandable because Steve's asking her questions she doesn't want to answer because she knows the truth. And then you see her at the next rehearsal at the show and she is an absolute prickly bitch when it comes to the arrangement. And she snaps at her band and she stalks off and it's a completely different exchange from what we saw at the previous rehearsal. And so when Martin goes to talk to her, that's when it all comes together. She's sweating, she's irritable. Oh wow, she's Jonesen. She is the addict. And Mike throws it in her face a little bit that he went to jail for her and she doesn't really appreciate that and he's trying to he is sincere in trying to coax her into going one more night getting through that performance without a fix really encouraging her and she just can't do it which is very much the truth when it comes to people who are in the throes of addiction they really they can't make it and when it comes to stuff like heroin physically there's huge huge issues with withdrawal so he ends up relenting and saying, okay, I'll get you a fix because obviously she's, she's going to need one. It's a real intense emotional scene. Help me, Mike. Help me. Oh, Edie, 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 baby. Honey, if we could just get past tomorrow. I can't make it. Yes, you can. No, it'll be just like before, only worse. 
So Martin goes on the, the hunt for a fix and it's just, okay, I took a criminology class and I took a substance abuse class in one of the many attempts I had at college because I am a three-time community college dropout. When they we talked about substance abuse and illegal narcotics, never once did it really come up in how you make those connections so you can obtain those narcotics. So I cannot verify if walking down the street and just asking random people who look like they might know is a good way to find a drug connection in a place where you don't know, when you don't have much of a network. But that's what Mark Martin did. And he literally, it was just him going up. There was a scene of him just going up and down the street, talking to people that look like they might know. So he talks to this big Hawaiian looking guy. And then he later talks to, to someone who, to a woman who might be a sex worker. And then he talks to another guy in a really flashy suit. He ends up being approached by this very old Asian man who for 10 bucks gives him Harry Parch's address. So what's really interesting to me is that this old Asian guy is working for Harry Parch to help solicit business. So he just like, I guess, hangs out on the sidewalk and looks for people like Mike Martin who might need a hookup. So that whole thing, I don't know how accurate that is, but it did just kind of strike me as bizarre. But hey, we needed to get him Harry Parch's number and that was the best way to do it. Unfortunately, 5 gets it before he does and gets to Harry before he does. So we get our, our strip search and we get Chin Ho. Finally, we get a little Chin Ho and he's doing something very useful and he finds Harry's stash. So we kind of think that, okay, maybe now because 5 was so certain that Harry was the one giving out the tainted heroin that, okay, we've got our guy, but that still leaves Mike in the lurch. And so then we get probably the most disturbing part of this episode probably the most disturbing part of, I would say, most of the episodes in this series. Mike is now approached by a kid. And when I say kid, I'm not talking about a 25-year-old playing 17. I'm talking about this kid couldn't be more than 12. I think he's supposed to be 10. He calls Martin out saying he knows why he was looking for Harry and basically says he can hook him up. And your first thought when he takes them to this house is that he's going to hook him up with a dealer. He knows another dealer. He's doing what the old Asian man was doing. No, he's the dealer and he's the user. And it's really unnerving to see that because this is a kid. This is a little kid. And he brings this rando adult into his house, past his mother, into his room, gets him the fix, and Martin questions him about how he knows it's good or not and because of the bad junk that's floating around. And of course, he says it's fuzz jive, which is fabulous. But then he also offers to demonstrate. He actually gets this stuff. We never, I don't think we ever see the needle, but when you see the tubing that they would use to tie it off and you see the spoon that they would use to cook it on. He starts getting that stuff out of his dresser and setting it up like he knows what he's doing. And... Mike, who is only doing this to help Edie and wants her to get clean, has a major crisis of conscience right here. And he ends up stopping the kid before he can do anything, telling him that he's going to ruin his life. And right then, Dano and Kono burst into the room. And two things happen. Obviously, Mike gets nabbed, but the kid also gets nabbed because he runs to the bathroom to try to flush it. And Kono catches him. So Dano actually says, we thought we got all of the, we all, we knew all of the pushers on this rock, but you keep flushing them out for us. You just flushed out more for us. So the implication here is that Martin is being acknowledged for his doing good in a sense that he found this kid, but there's also that implication of that maybe this kid will get help 
and get out of the business and get off the smack. But it's still incredibly bleak to have this kid using and dealing and his voice hasn't even changed yet. But it does lead us to a pinnacle moment in the episode and that is when Martin and Steve are talking in the jail cell and Martin is begging to be able to play this gig because Edie can't go on without him. And Steve even at one point offers him help and says, we will get you to a hospital. We will get you on methadone to help you kick your, your habit. Which again, progressive, even in today's society, they would rather just stick you in a jail cell and let you rot rather than treating the source of the addiction and therefore the source of the crime, so to speak. And Martin actually lights up at the, the idea of methadone, but he's thinking of Edie, but he can't say that. And it's not until, I mean, he's really begging to, to play this gig that it all clicks for Steve. And he's like, you should be jonesing right now. You should be hurting right now. You should have jumped the chance at going to the hospital to get methadone. And you're not, you're not the user. You went to jail for Edie because you love her. She's the user. She's the addict. And which Martin finally admits and admits that he has been trying to help her quit. But he hasn't been successful and he wants to get Edie help. And he's like, can we get her in the hospital and get her some methadone? Can we do this? And Steve would like to help as well. But now the trick is they have to find Edie because now they know she'll be hurting. And with Martin in jail, she's going to be out there looking. And so obviously, without giving too many spoilers, you know she's going to find and you know it's not going to end well for anybody. Because that's how these drug morality tales always go. There's only one kind of redemption. One major redeeming quality of this episode is our guest cast, so let's take a look at them. As I said, Edie Jordan was played by Nancy Wilson. She was a jazz singer and a Grammy Award winner, and one of her biggest hits was You Don't Know How Glad I Am. She was also Louise Bryan on The Sinbad Show, and she turned up in episodes of Burke's Law, I Spy, The Carol Burnett Show, Room 222, O'Hara, U.S. Treasury, Search, It's a Living, and The Parkers. And she was in the movies The Meteor Man and The Big Score, and she's turned up on multiple soundtracks. Ron was played by Milton Seltzer. This is his second of six episodes. We also saw him in Strangers in Our Own Land. Mike Martin was played by Harry Guardino. This is his second of four episodes. We also saw him in A Thousand Pardons, You're Dead. Rags was played by Robert Gibbons. He turned up in episodes of The Untouchables, Peter Gunn, Dennis the Menace, Have Gun Will Travel, Gunsmoke, Perry Mason, The Fugitive, Man from Uncle, Hogan's Heroes, Room 222, My Three Sons, Monty Nash with Harry Guardino, FBI, Ironside, Chico and the Man, Mannix, Columbo, and Little House on the Prairie. He was in the movie Sweet November, and he was in the TV movies Death at Love House and The Spell. Harry Parch was played by David Burton. He turned up in episodes of Vegas and Crime Story. He was also in the movies In God We Trust, or Give Me That Primetime Religion, Teen Wolf 2, Joe vs. the Volcano, Gladiator, and the Starsky and Hutch movie. And he was in the TV movies March for Murder and Pleasure Palace. He also has 53 stunt credits, including Amityville 3D, Scarface, Star Trek 3 and 5, Beverly Hills Cop, The Hitcher, The Lost Boys, The Blob, the 88 version, They Live, Police Academy 6, Lethal Weapon 2, Predator 2, Edward Scissorhands, 
Gladiator, Patriot Games, Dude Where's My Car, Starsky and Hutch, and Domino. The boy that Mike Martin nearly buys a fix off of was played by Remy Abalira. This is his third of eight episodes. We also saw him in Blind Tiger and Run Johnny Run. Hank, the drummer, was played by Morton Stevens. This is his only acting credit, but he created the theme for Hawaii Five-O, as well as the theme for Code Red, Police Woman, Spencer's Pilots, Apple's Way, Matt Helm, and Minute Law. He also has music credits for Gilligan's Island, The Wild Wild West, and Cimarron Strip, and he has music credits for the TV movies Soul Survivor, Night Chase, Harpy, Goodbye Raggedy Ann, Killer by Night, and Something Evil. Kylie was played by Hal Lewis. This is his third of four episodes. And in uncredited roles, the bass player was played by George Red Callender. He is a musician who performed with Louis Armstrong and Nat King Cole before forming his own trio. His only other credited roles are the movies New Orleans and St. Louis Blues. The trombone player was James Young. He was a member of Louis Armstrong's band. And his only other credited role is in the Glenn Miller story. Our writer, Sasha Gillian, only one episode of Hawaii Five-O, and the only other writing credit is for four episodes of The Big Valley. Our director, Danny Arnold, he only did one episode of Hawaii Five-O, but he also has directing credits for four episodes of Stat, five episodes of Joe Bash, 13 episodes of Barney Miller, and six episodes of That Girl. He also has a director credit for the TV movie Operation Razzle Dazzle. But he's probably better known as a writer and creator, as he is the creator of Stat, Barney Miller, Fish, and AES Hudson Street, which is the series that Gregory Sierra left Barney Miller to star in. And he also has a Created for TV credit for The Wackiest Ship in the Army. He also has writing credits for That Girl, Bewitched, Mikhail's Navy, and The Real McCoys. His writing credits for the movies Fort Yuma, Desert Stands, Rebel in Town, and The War Between Men and Women, and he has writing credits for the TV movies, Anne in Blue, Alan, and Operation Razzle Dazzle. Every honeybee fills with jealousy when they see you out. Wait a minute, fellas. Still wrong. And that is Trouble in Mind. This is definitely a much quieter uh, Hawaii Five-O episode in that because we're dealing with addiction and we're more importantly dealing with poisoned heroin, there's not a whole lot of action going on. There's, there's not uh, big time villains happening here, but there is a lot of music. So if you like music, you're going to love this episode. I love listening to Nancy Wilson, so no complaints here from me. And like I said, it is a drug morality tale. So you kind of know how the it's going to end when you go in. But it's still a good ride. A little bleak when you consider the ending and also the 10-year-old kid dealing and using. But hey, you do get two strip searches. And what other show are you going to be able to say that about? Definitely give this one a watch. How's your head? Lousy. And that is episode 27 of Bookum Dano. Two good episodes to start off season three. Obviously, you're always going to have a winner with Wofat just because it's Wofat. But it really was a good episode, particularly with Gerald S.O. Laughlin back again to be a thorn in Jack Lord's side. And as I said, Trouble in Mind is great for the music alone. But then when you put the storyline with it, like I said, a bit bleak, 
but it's still a really engrossing watch. So you're not going to regret either one, but two rather different episodes to put back to back. Because even though we have a child in danger and a time to die is a little more fun than trouble in mind. Thanks so much for joining me once again for yet another season. Very much so appreciate your ears. I hope you're enjoying yourself and I'm hoping you're ready for another season of Bookum Dano and Hawaii Five-O. I'm sure it's going to be a good time. And thanks once again for my neighborhood and my house for being incredibly loud whenever I record. Multiple sirens, sighting, and every loud car possible going down the street. The only thing I didn't have was dogs barking and I thought I was going to escape from the lawnmower but there is somebody mowing the lawn somewhere in the neighborhood. I don't know if you can hear it or not but just know that they are dedicated to always mowing while I record. Also my bird. My bird was in, my bird has been silent all day but as soon as I started recording he starts yelling outside of my window. I love my bird. I don't know who he is but I only hear him when I record. He's magnificent. I love you. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to the new home of Bookham Dano. Yes, Bookham Dano and all of my podcasting ventures and rerun junkie content has moved to aka kikirights.com. So that's going to be the new home of Bookham Dano. And like I said, all of my podcasting ventures and all of my rerun junkie content you can find there. However, kikiwritesabout.com still exists, though it's mostly going to be for my writing content. So once you get sick of listening to me talk, you can head on over to kikiwritesabout.com and you can get annoyed by reading my words. But if you'd like to be annoyed in real time, you can always do that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So don't let those State Department pricks get you down and stay off the smack. Until next time, aloha.